With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. HN Podcast, I'm John Miller, along with Steve Dace, going to reach into the uh, fan, listener, follower grab bag today. A little Hawkeye fan response on Twitter, Potpourri. We threw out the bat signal earlier this week and asked you for some of your questions, thoughts, etc. for this week's episode of the HN Podcast. So that is what we're going to dive into. Let's jump in right away, Steve, that one that takes a little bit of, of thanking. Tony Delaney um, on Twitter asked us to rank Iowa opponent, Iowa football opponents difficulty one through 12 based on, you know, just our thoughts on who would be the toughest and who would be the challenging. Let's start at number 12. And I, I, I did this, Steve, you tell me if you agree or disagree. And I have Miami of Ohio at number 12. Then I, it's a middle, it's a home game right up to the top of the season. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, Miami kind of had a window there with uh, Chuck Stobart, their head coach. Kind of had a window the last couple of years. Remember they had that season where they started like 0-6 and, and then won six in a row to get to a bowl and that beat Mississippi State in a bowl game a couple of years ago. And then they brought a lot of those guys back. And so they kind of had a window in the MAC, and they just never were able to take advantage of it. And now a lot of those guys are gone. So this is going to be kind of a total rebuild for what's already kind of one of the scuffling programs in the MAC. And my numbers are showing it's not a great year in the MAC, period. So, yes, I would agree with you. And you do have numbers on most every team. My, my next pick here, I, I vacillated between Middle Tennessee State and Rutgers. And I put Middle Tennessee State here because if they're better than Rutgers, then Rutgers has more problems than we even think they do. Yeah, well, it wouldn't even be close. Middle Tennessee is is another is a mid-major program that's been really good uh, the last few years, um, or fairly decent might be a better way of putting it. Interesting storyline. You had a father-son, you know, uh, Stockstill is the name, and the father is the coach, and the son went and played at another school and decided he wanted to play for his old man. And they won a lot of games at the mid-major level together. Uh, but uh, the, the son is now uh, graduated. They've got a tough schedule. They're, they've got Iowa and Michigan in the non-conference. So um, they're going to get pretty beat up. This looks like a kind of a struggle-to-get-bowl-eligible year for the Blue Raiders. Then next at number 10, I kind of gave it away, um, and I'll go 9-10 here. I, I put Rutgers at 10. And Illinois at nine, and I actually think Illinois is quite a bit better than Rutgers. Um, my numbers say the overall depth in the program is pretty similar, but when I but when I do the the Power Five breakdown um, in terms of how each team in the Big Ten's units rank, Illinois is demonstrably better than Rutgers. Um, so I would agree with that ranking as well. Um, now Rutgers is bringing in a guy to compete with Arthur Sitkowski, the freshman quarterback who really struggled last year. And and most freshman quarterbacks struggle when they don't have great talent around them. But they brought in a guy named McLean Carter, who's a who actually won the job at Texas Tech last August 
the starting job over Alan Bowman, who a lot of people really like, including Pro Football Focus. They love that Alan Bowman guy. And McLean Carter got hurt. So they won't be any worse at quarterback. I don't know that their overall talent, though, is better. Defensively, they were decent at times last year. They lost a lot of those guys. So, yeah, I, I think Rutgers, when you look at the transfers that Illinois brought in, and, they, and they've lost some of the ones they brought in already, but you, you, it looks like you're going to have Brandon Peters now. You come over from Michigan and be the starting quarterback. Um, you've got a couple of starting receivers from places like out from USC and, and some other Power 5 schools. And, yeah, I, I mean, and when I say much better, I, mean, I think one team will be lucky to win two or three games, and I think the other team could maybe win four, maybe possibly five. All right, so those are my um, – the I hate using this term, but the, the easiest on the difficulty schedule, 12, 11, 10, 9. Now I'm at 8, and I will tell you, from this point in, We'll probably have some disagreements or not significant disagreements because Iowa's schedule the rest of this way. Holy crap. I mean, we've talked about it before. When I started to try to rank these things, I'm like, son of a gun. Because I have number eight, Minnesota, at home. And you have – you've done your own power rankings. You've read all the magazines. Mm -hmm. There are some magazines that have Minnesota's highest second in the West – and I have them as the, you know, eighth most challenging game on Iowa's 12-game schedule. Well, my preview is done. Um, my the guy, uh, one of my employees who helps me edit stuff is editing all of my copy as we speak. But uh, all of my predictions and everything are done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to spoil anything yet until it's ready to go. But I will say this: in my Power Five breakdown, there's a the, my final numbers as of now. Now I, I'm I'm going to keep updating these throughout the summer when if if there's more attrition, okay? But mm-hmm. my my final numbers as of right now have Iowa two points better than Minnesota, so they're basically even. So mm-hmm. if you're telling me that's Iowa's eighth easiest game, yikes! Yeah. Yikes! Yeah. Well, I mean, we're going to keep going along here, and, and you know what the schedule is, but yeah. I don't know that we I don't know that we've tried to rank it yet uh, relative to what we're doing right now. So my number seven is Penn State at home, and they we we all know the talent that they lose. We all know that they have to replace a quarterback. When I, when I look at what, you know, there, there's some teams up higher, and I'm not going to give away this slot yet, but, you know, Purdue's beaten Iowa two straight years, and Iowa doesn't have an answer for Jeff Brom's answer to them. Uh, Iowa State's going to have the best defense maybe it's had in, in, a, in a quarter century, and you have to play there, and you have an experienced quarterback, uh, and a team that, you know, a team that is, isn't a, a shrinking violet. Uh, you got to go to Northwestern, and they've, they've had your number a little bit. Wisconsin, you have to go there. So, I mean, tell me I'm wrong with Penn State right here. No, you're not wrong. Um, I And I think it's the home away split that it matters is. quite that, a bit. That absolutely matters. Games. Yeah, I agree with you. Yep. So and, and number six, this was a hard one. How about the fact I, the home game with Penn State, though? We are we are debating whether that is in the middling pack. Yes, of Iowa's football schedule. So, you know, if you got grief from 
Hawkeye fans all off season when I was warning about this schedule, you you can all line up to apologize to me through John Miller's analysis when we're finished here. Thank you. <laughs> this this schedule is insane. It's, and and if this and if this wasn't if this if this wasn't the most in, the deepest team in terms of personnel that um, yeah. Yeah. I was had in the three years I've been doing total team talent ratings. I would think if this was more of a, a typical Iowa roster, I, bull eligibility would not be taken for granted in my mind. I don't disagree with you. Uh, number six, and we're, we're talking we're talking decimal shades of I could have moved this around. I have the game at Iowa State. Let me give you my rationale. It has nothing to do with you know trying to talk smack. I don't do that anymore, or very often. Um, Iowa State hasn't beaten Iowa in a while. Iowa has had their number physically. It doesn't mean that these games have been 35 to 3, Austin or not, through another interception over the middle again, track meets like they were back in 2010, etc. It's just that Iowa's beat them several years in a row, and Iowa seemed to have an answer. That said, this game, if, if, if you're chalking this one up in the wind column and you're an Iowa fan, you better slow your roll. I mean, this is going to be a very, very difficult game, and I have this at six. Somebody could argue that maybe Northwestern deserves to be here or Nebraska deserves to be here or Purdue deserves to be here. And, frankly, I wouldn't I, – I would not, you know, put a flag down and die on that hill. But I'm putting Iowa State right here just because I always had the better of them for a good run here. Again, I agree. And, and we're going to probably agree the rest of the way because – these are a lot of these kind of go in the same. These teams are kind of in the same in, in terms of where they're at in the preseason. And now last year, you'll recall that I talked about Matt Campbell's record as an underdog at Iowa State. It's been insane. But I liked Iowa in that game last year because, you know, the trend is you might as well get this out of the way because you're going to hear this now. We're getting close to the season. We're only 63 days or we're 60 days away. So the trend is your tr- is your friend until it runs into human nature. Human nature always trumps trends, all right? Because we're we're handicapping teams, not algorithms, not we're players, not formulas, all right? And so all of the math said to take Iowa State in that game as an underdog, and they had the big revenge spot. Matt Campbell hadn't beaten Iowa yet, but we ran into that situation where Iowa State's game got canceled. It was really their first game of the year. What that did and everything for their show for their for their. Uh, I almost said show prep, uh, for, for the game prep, just unlike any situation that they have faced in this rivalry game. And so I thought you threw all those trends out. And, and then, you know, you got to the game, and Iowa State was never really in it. Iowa, it wasn't a, blow, a blowout, but Iowa was pretty much physically in control most of the way. Now, this year, I, I, I got to believe, the, it, the one re, the, there's two goals Matt Campbell has that Iowa State has yet to accomplish. He's done everything else, and that is win the Big 12, which is a Herculean chore, even for as far as he's brought the program. Beating Iowa is the other. And so the emphasis and everything that's going to be placed, it's going to be Dan McCarney-esque emphasis by Matt Campbell placed on that game this year. So um, I'm not sure. Well, I, so I, I don't think it's as, that's as big of a deal as, as what the – Prep the, the the prep anomaly did to Iowa State a year ago, but I do think because of that, the the trend of how this has played for Iowa in recent years isn't quite as prevalent to me because of I because 
of how much I anticipate Iowa State to emphasize yeah. that game all the more this year. Yeah, and, and it, I think that Matt Campbell is a win or two away from Iowa from giving Iowa the biggest challenge for in-state recruits it's had since back 2000, 2001, that range. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that that emphasis would not be misplaced. It, it doesn't mean it's their Super Bowl. And I know by that I love rolling out that this is Iowa State Super Bowl, and for a while it was. But I don't think it's been that way for a while. But it, it's very important because Iowa State can do really good things in this state in recruiting with the staff that they have. A, I have had conversations with people who have intimate knowledge of Iowa State's recruiting process, the interactions and inner workings of the Iowa State assistant coaches with families. And without getting too specific, I would say if I were an Iowa State fan, I'd be incredibly, incredibly pumped up and glad that Matt Campbell stayed there, assuming they want to be there and wants to be there for a good while because I think that they have some really good things in place and they're only going to continue to make greater inroads. And that has nothing to do with Iowa doing anything wrong. It's just that these guys are really good. They're really good at that. And if they, if they continue to be as good at play as player development and identifying the right guys for them as they seem to be thus far, they're not going away. Just not. Uh, Nebraska is what I, uh, or rather Purdue is what I have at five. And this is something I probably could have pushed them up. Uh, if it would have been at Purdue and Nebraska at home, I would have flip-flopped them. But it's Purdue and Kinnick. Um, Jeff Brom needs to pay Kirk Ferentz rent because he's got a room in his head. He has schemed Ferentz beautifully uh, these past few years, and hopefully Iowa has an answer back for him. But, again, Purdue is at number five. I'm okay with that as well. And, you know, we kind of thought that Iowa had solved the whole spread offense thing, going back to what, you know, Iowa State and what Purdue and Joe Tiller used to do to them, which is, you know, have that slot receiver covered by the linebacker as Iowa State in its base defense. Uh, Phil Parker's been much more willing to evolve schematically when necessary. Um, you know, just different generation than the late, great Norm Parker, who you remember is one of my all-time favorite dudes. And so that hasn't been as much of an issue um, I, I, so I don't think it's an alignment issue. I just think Jeff Brom's just damn good at his job. Okay. And, you know, if, if you aren't putting multiple cover guys out there on the field that can play tight man to man, um, then, you know, and, you know, and you aren't, you aren't creating a great pass rush. Now that's not been a problem for the Iowa the last couple of years, you know, in terms of you looked at the guys they had drafted this past year, they're going to have a, a guy I think drafted in the top 10 or 15 minimum next year. So those are, and, and most of those are edge guys. But if you can't cover man to man in the slot, um, he's gonna, he is, it's a little bit like, you know, he's the new Joe Tiller slash Hayden Fry. He's gonna, he's gonna scratch where it itches. And so, um, I like his team this year. I think they'll be even better next year. Um, and they have to bring Rondale Moore back next year, uh, cause he'll only be a sophomore this year. And next year when they have guys, big recruits for them, like, you know, they're, they're beating, you know, major programs now for guys like Rondale Moore, David Bell. And when those guys have a, another, another whole year together next year, I kind of think 2020 is sort of Purdue's year, but you're right. In terms of matchups, they are a tough matchup for Iowa. And one of the other reasons why is even if you're running the ball well and you're chewing the clock, the big play potential that they put out there 
you, you really can't ever truly let up against them if you're playing them on a day when they're on. Indeed. Um, at number four, I have the game at Nebraska. And, yes, Iowa has beaten them four consecutive times. Many of those games have been lopsided. Uh, last year's game, Iowa won on a last-second field goal in Scott Frost's first year. I think that they will be making improvements along the defensive line this year. I think they only have to be average on defense to win eight games with this schedule and with the, the dynamic aspects of their offense. And that is a very difficult place to play. And I think that this is a game that they really, really want. So I'm putting this one at number four. Kind of reminds me a lot of the Iowa State game uh, for all the reasons you just indicated. And, you know, for Scott Frost, you know, part of this, the, what he's trying to reinstill at that culture at Nebraska is a certain haughtiness, a certain arrogance. The idea that, you know, we look at Iowa as a benchmark, as a stepping stone. Um, you know, he played in an era where he would have laughed at that. You know, I think he was the quarter. Was he, wasn't he the, no, because it was 99, right? Right. Was Kirk's first year. So that Correct. was after, so they would have had uh, the Heisman winner would have been the quarterback then. Um, the guy after Scott Frost, whose name escapes me now, who's in TV. But, um, yeah, so I agree with you. The, here's the only reason I hesitate. I, like I said a few minutes ago, I finished my preview. All of the numbers are pretty much done. It's in editing now. The, the, the program in this, in this sport, more reliant on one player than any other is Nebraska. My entire evaluation of them hinges on the health of Adrian Martinez. Did you say anyone in the sport? Anyone in the entire sport, yeah. Wow. Anyone in the sport. I mean, the, the drop-off from him, it's an, it, it's an offense. You know I don't like to admit losing arguments, particularly to Jerry DiNardo. But he, <laughs> when I lose, when I lose, I'll admit it, okay? How do you when like I losing lose, him to how, how, do you, how do you like losing to Howard Griffiths? You let me know when it happens. Well, he's got to have an opinion first. Okay? Yeah, so you let me know when it happens. Yes, when, yeah, he's got to have an opinion before I can lose an argument to him. Right, but uh, Denardo was adamant when Rich Rod brought this offense into the league for the first time that if the quarterback isn't a runner, the, the offense is a no go, and he he's proven to be exactly right. So they have to run him. You know, if the weapons around him are good, they don't have to run him a lot. But if he's not a threat and he's bigger, now he's not Vince Young big. You're not going to see guys bouncing off of him, you know, but he's bigger than he was last year. But when the drop-off behind him, um, you know, they have Noah Vendrell who came in from Central Florida. But, you know, he was the backup at Central Florida. He wasn't beaten out. Um, Mackenzie Milton, obviously, and then the guy who played over Mackenzie Milton. Now Brandon Wimbush, the Notre Dame, or after Mackenzie Wilton got hurt, they had another guy, and then Brandon Wimbush from Notre Dame is going to, is there this year as well. So he was riding the bench at Central Florida. So I, I don't, you know, and if you saw in the spring, he's got a long way to go. I mean, there's a massive drop-off there. It's not quite what it was last year where it went from Adrian Martinez to walk-ons, but but I would venture a guess it's the biggest drop-off of, I, well, I wouldn't guess, I would know. It's the biggest drop-off of any quarterback in our league, and I think it's there. he's more important to the team's fortunes than any player in all of college football. So if he's in the lineup, you know, then I could actually put this game up higher on the list. If he's not in the lineup, then this game would be like right above, you know, Rutgers, right above Illinois. Yeah. yeah I don't, and I don't think their, talent, their talent's not much different than Illinois when you take him off the field, John. It's not. 
there's still a recruiting class away. Well, why don't you qualify that a little bit more for all the um, Huskers that are rubbernecking to this one? We we both feel that the in your numbers bared out the talent they have in their freshman and sophomore classes is what third best in the Big Ten. Yeah, when and you it's say also that they have the highest ratio. When I say they're a year away, here's what I mean. That's they have yeah, the highest. That. They have the they have the highest ratio of talent score in their freshman and sophomore classes than any other program in the Power Five. Wow. Wow. Okay. Get them now, right? Yes. So you're playing next year's team right now is what you're playing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, you, you say if, if, if the quarterback is in the lineup, Martinez is in the lineup, then, yeah, this game could be higher. He could also be in the lineup, but he's played 11 games, and those legs might not be the legs they are in September, but he's the best they got. So Iowa is – Iowa has Nebraska on the schedule probably where you'd like to have them on the schedule uh, relative to the dynamic ratio of what Martinez can be against you. Uh, number three, I have got the game at Northwestern. And this is probably the biggest show of respect I've ever paid to Northwestern <laughs> because I've typically overlooked them at my own peril later on. It's to the point now where they get the benefit of the doubt from me. This transfer quarterback they have was it from Clemson, right? Hunter Johnson. Uh, I, I, yes. We'll we'll see how he is, but if um if he can be a run and pass threat, we know what that offense does to people, especially Iowa. Now Iowa's moved to the four two five, and another year of that under their belt, I think, is going to pay dividends for them. But you know, last year they were playing that that formation and. Somebody named Bowser from Shanana ran right down their freaking throats, which <laughs> still pisses chocolate. me off. Yes. Yes. Um, so you know, I'm I'm betting on Iowa maybe being a a little better up the middle this year on defense, uh, especially if if Davian Nixon can be close to what I think he can be. But you know what? They get the benefit of the doubt for me. They've earned it. You know, defensive front seven is probably about as good as a team. That isn't a dynamic recruiter and doesn't have a long legacy of in the developmental phase, like a Wisconsin, Michigan State, or Iowa do, of developing those guys for the pros. Um, when you look at, you know, Joe Gaziano, Patty Fisher, those are guys that would start for every single team in this league and would right. start for about 95, 98% of teams in college football. Um, and so their defensive front seven's legit. I mean, this is essentially the team that went to the Big Ten championship game last year just without Clayton Thorson at quarterback. And and so Hunter Johnson comes in. Since Michigan brought in Ryan Mallett, the two five-star quarterbacks that have come into this league both came since Ryan Mallett, which was in 2007. Two five-star quarterbacks, I believe, have come to the Big Ten. Or, I'm sorry, since Terrell Pryor in 2008. Two five-star quarterbacks have come to the Big Ten, both of them via transfer. Shea Patterson last year, Hunter Johnson this year. So what worries me if, 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 if I'm playing against Northwestern is when I see the amount of effort Pat Fitzgerald is going to this offseason into talking him down. And the reason that would worry me is because Pat is old school, you know, and I'd be more inclined to think that, that's more of a guy trying – he's worried about him getting too big of a head on his shoulders. 
Mm-hmm. Athletically, athletically, he's at a different level than Clayton Thorson. Now, in terms of leadership, guile, toughness, you know, we won't know until he goes out there and plays. And we're going to know pretty quick because they open the year at Stanford. And he's going to go head-to-head with a senior, with a quarterback in K.J. Costello that, you know, it could be an NFL draft pick uh, come next next April. So mm-hmm. that's really the story of their team. The schedule is not as, as favorable for them as it was last year. You know, they had the – they had those three. They had that ridiculous non-conference schedule, but then the schedule the rest of the year really opened up for them. Uh, the schedule is is friendlier, um, so it really comes down to who is Hunter Johnson. If if he's if he's as good as advertised, they're a better team than they were last year. Doesn't mean they'll win the West again, but they're a better team than they were last year. So yeah, and if I were an Iowa fan, I'd be so gun shy about this. I don't blame you at all. You know, I, I totally get it. Yeah, and that brings me to number two. The team I have at number two, probably talent-wise, doesn't deserve to be there. And that's Wisconsin. The game's on the road at Wisconsin. And I, I will just say this. Since Ricky Stanzi uttered the words, America, love her, leave it, on the Orange Bull podium in the beginning days of 2010, Iowa is one in six against Wisconsin. And... To be the man, you got to beat the man. And Wisconsin has, by and large, been the man in this division for the last better part of the decade. And it's in Camp Randall. And the only win Iowa has had of the last seven meetings was gift-wrapped 10-6 on a day when I think Iowa either threw for 70 yards or had 70 yards of total offense. I think it was they threw for like 76. They needed Wisconsin to fumble on the goal line. Uh, to, to win it. So, yeah, they're number two for me. You know, I remember way back when, uh, was it 05 was Barry Alvarez's last year, I think, at Wisconsin. And That sounds about right. And, and I remember telling you the whole offseason, man, if there's one game, I can tell you right now, I was not winning. They're not winning that game in Madison, which was going to be Wisconsin's, or Alvarez's final home game. No way you go in there and win. And they did, actually. <laughs> I was dead wrong. And it just seems like ever since then, um, it's you know it's just it's not gone well. So in terms of personnel, I, you know, my numbers rank Wisconsin the sixth best team in the Big Ten West, but it's it's really close. I think it's Iowa at ninety two points and Wisconsin at like seventy eight. Mm-hmm. So we're really just talking one game, one injury. And all those teams kind of all look alike. Uh, so, again, if you look at history, if you look at what that game means, um, you know, Wisconsin has, has been, and I sympathize as a Michigan fan, because this is all the same language that I, we use about Ohio State, that really this is the team that has stood in the way of us taking the next step, and that has been Wisconsin. And I, I, I don't blame you for feeling that way at all, given situationally what is at stake. I was three and eight against Wisconsin since that 2005 game. The average score is Wisconsin 21.9 and Iowa 18.6. Um, but still, Wisconsin's won it eight times. So number one, that leaves. Well, that the game also, at- you know what that also tells you? It's a helmet game. Then is what that also tells you that Wisconsin just believes in the fourth quarter they're going to make plays to beat you, and and you guys have a tendency to look down at your jerseys in the fourth quarter. 
when it, and go, yep, this is how they beat us every single time. That's what that tells you when you have a market. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I would piss that, yeah. Iowa pissed that one away last year, and it was the one game all year that Alex Hornibrook looked like the guy that we thought he could be. Right, right. Um, number one, uh, Michigan, because they simply have the best talent by far of anyone on Iowa's schedule. The game is at Michigan. It will be the best pro prospect quarterback that Iowa sees all year long. And it's at the big house, which, you know, hasn't been a house of horrors, but, and I always had success there, but history does not, okay. I've basically used recent history for my putting Northwestern and Wisconsin as high as they are. And yes, Iowa beat Harbaugh a few years ago. I always had success at Michigan, but I don't think there's any Iowa player on the roster that has ever uh, been to Ann Arbor. I'd have to go back and look at the head to head the last time Iowa was there. And I, I just, I think a lot of things favor Michigan in this particular game. So that's why I'm putting them at number one here. Well, in terms of talent, my numbers agree. It's not even close between Michigan and any of the teams we just mentioned, including Penn State. Um, schematically, Iowa has matched up very well with Michigan um, because a I lot see. of it, a, a lot of it has been the, the phone booth football. You know, even when Denard was there, they wanted to run a power running scheme. And Iowa was kind of the first team to figure out in Denard's career there. You know, if you can, in fact, you could go look at Denard Robinson's career at Michigan. And you can go look at Denard Robinson's numbers in a season before <laughs> they played Iowa. Yeah. And then what their numbers were, his numbers were the rest of the year after they played Iowa. You know, now you're going to face a whole new offense though this year. This is going to be more, uh, up tempo, um, kind of a, a quick hitter. Uh, they're gonna. It's gonna be a power running game like you've wanted Iowa to do for years, where they're gonna run power running, meaning what do we mean by power running? Man ball, pulling guards, those sorts of things. But it's gonna not be out of zone three and four receivers. That's what it means. Yeah, out of a, yeah, out of a three or four receiver set, not a man ball. You're right. It's a zone scheme. So um, it'll it'll be fascinating to see how Iowa matches up with that because it will it will look like it, it, this isn't gonna look anything at all. Like the Michigan team, Iowa beat back, you know, with that great upset back in 2016. So this is another game where I'm not sure the recent trend is relevant because there, it, it's just going to be human beings doing different things than they were doing the last few times that Iowa has played Michigan very well. But we'll yeah, I mean, yeah, the last time Iowa played Michigan was 2016. So there's some guys that were on the roster, still snot nosed freshmen. Um, the last time Iowa was in Ann Arbor was 2012. None, none of these guys were on the roster. Mm-hmm. Interestingly right. enough, and this is apropos of nothing, uh, in the Kirk Ferentz era, Iowa 7-5 against Michigan. The average score is Iowa 23.3 and Michigan 24.08. Uh, and Iowa's 7-5. So they've been, it's been good. That includes, that includes a 34-9 to in there that, um, skewers some of that scoring total as well. So keep that yeah. in mind. Yeah. It, yeah. it does. It does. So basically our first reader mail question took 30 minutes. <laughs> well, it was a really good question. It was a really good question. And I really, it's the kind of thing that we both really enjoy talking about. Um, next up from, and, and thank you, Tony, for that. From Paul Adams, 
Will Oliver Martin get his waiver? Oliver Martin, transfer receiver from Michigan to Iowa. Iowa City kid. Most of you listening to this know that fully well. Uh, Mark Morehouse reported in the Cedar Rapids Gazette this past week that Kirk, uh, he interviewed Kirk Ferentz at one of the Iowa chicken, rubber chicken circuit stops saying that, uh, Martin is petitioning to have immediate eligibility. Uh, you, it's next to impossible to know what the NCAA is going to rule, how they will rule on these sorts of things. You know, I guess if you want to, you look for extenuating circumstances as to why the NCAA would grant him immediate eligibility. Uh, there were a few quarterbacks along the way, Shea Patterson at Michigan being one, uh, Ohio State starting quarterback being another who were granted immediate eligibility. Um, Shea Patterson's head coach. Uh, was fired, so he was able to trans. That was kind of the primary reason, right, Steve? That his coach and they went on. Fired. They went on probation, had a two-year bull ban. Okay, so that's even that's that's more than just a coach being fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Georgia quarterback claimed uh, racism um, at Georgia, even though his sister signed on to play softball at Georgia. Is that right? Yeah, she stayed there. So here's the situation: Just Justin Fields claimed racial animus. And it's a documented case of racial animus. That's not, that's not debatable. Okay. Mm-hmm. There was a baseball player that engaged in some racial animus towards Justin Fields and he was removed from the baseball program. So no one is denying this, but after, yeah. after this story though, it gets tricky because Fields wanted to make the case basically that he felt unsafe at Georgia, even though his sister is a student athlete at the same school. And then once, and then once a lot of people were like, Come on, man. You just weren't going to start over Jake Fromm. And so you just went to Ohio State because they had an opening with Dwayne Haskins going pro. Don't pee on me and tell me it's raining. Once they did that, his lawyer, Thomas Mars, who was the same attorney that Shane Patterson had, his lawyer said, oh, no, 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 we weren't claiming racial animus at all, which everybody also knows is total bull crap. And, but once Thomas Mars said this publicly, the NCAA then had to grant Tate Martell his eligibility because if they didn't, it was going to open up this whole can of worms of what's racial animus and what's not. And in today's political environment, you're just getting nowhere with that. They don't mm-hmm. want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. What you have seen, though, since Tate Martell, is you have seen the NCA be far more stingier along the lines of what it used to be with these waivers. And that's exactly why I don't think Oliver Martin has much of a chance at all. I, right. I now, now, personally, I think that if you've established a year of residency and you are on pace to graduate, you ought to just be able to transfer at that point. I think the NCAA, the NCAA ought to simply say there's no that everybody has to sit out a year and there's no waivers, or everybody gets to transfer once provided they've established a year of residency. Because you don't want Brew McCoy situations. You know, the guy signs to USC, transfers to Texas, transfers back to USC. You don't want that stuff. All right, so. Once you've established a year of residency, if you're in academic standing, then you may transfer one time, anytime you want, without waiting. Either they do that or there are no waivers because the system has become completely and totally um, Byzantine, uh, circumstantial, morally relativistic. And it, it's a bad look every time the NCAA wait, like what happened with Luke Ford at Illinois. Where yeah. he, he goes from Georgia to Illinois for a sick grandpa. Well, it's not a hundred miles to Chicago, uh, from Champaign. So, uh, screw you. I mean, uh, but if, if Luke Ford couldn't get a waiver, I don't know that Oliver Martins, well, they changed to an offense where they were actually going to play more receivers at Michigan 
So I should, I don't think that's going to be much of a compelling case. So I wouldn't hold my breath. Well, yeah, that and he's the different coordinator. I, I just don't think, I don't think it's going to happen. So I would agree with you. I, I don't think so, but thank you, Paul, uh, for the question. Jason Holtgrew asks, during the Ference era, what's one change Iowa has made that's helped it continue or improve upon its success? And what's one change that it hasn't made that's kept it from having even more success? I'd like to answer the latter, and I'll go first and give you time to think of the former, and you can answer both if you want. The one change I think that Iowa hasn't made that has kept it from having more success has been their their they've continued to employ the zone blocking scheme in their running game on offense. When teams have clearly figured out ways to make it a lot tougher for Iowa to accomplish what it wants to accomplish. Iowa, that doesn't mean Iowa hasn't had success in the zone scheme. It's just that it makes things much harder. It makes Iowa play so much more of a grinder style of football in a non-grinder era. It, it limits their big play ability in the running game. It makes them have to play break-the-rock football. And where we sit and watch, well, okay, they ran it 25 times in the first half for an average of 2.8 yards per carry. But we have faith that in the second half they're going to break some of these, just like they did against Nebraska in 2013 with Jordan Kinsari, or was it 2014? It was, yeah, 2013 when they busted through. Or maybe that was 2015. I don't know. But that one time, you know? where they broke some of those in the second half after they ran into mm-hmm. the wall over and over yeah. and over and over and over. Yeah. So I think that they have enough talent, more than enough talent, offensive line-wise and in recruiting, to play man ball football, uh, pulling guards, counters, uh, power-o, hat-on-hat blocking, and if you want to mix some zone scheme and that's fine, but really if you're going to mix in zone scheme, you need to be as, I mean, it's just such a, a duet and a balance. I think they can go make that move, not be overloaded in the backfield with a tight end all the time and power scheme, do more, you know, single back formation, three receiver runs, emptying out the box. I just think that they've made things harder on themselves in the running game. That's why Iowa's running game, when you consider the talent that they put out consistently at offensive line, the the average yards per carry doesn't seem to jive with the talent level they have, and I think that they make it harder on themselves. I'll let that answer stand. I think it's a really good one. In terms of the change I think they have made over the years, um, I'm going to go with Phil Parker because I think what you got in – and his anointing is you had you had a perfect storm there where you kept the fundamentals of a scheme that had proven itself, had proven to be very successful. You know, of course, he played for Norm uh, at Michigan State. If you're one of our younger listeners, I believe Phil Parker is the is the Michigan State corner that gets totally psyched out way back in the day. You can watch that game on YouTube. Iowa, number one, Iowa against Michigan State. Um, and I think Parker is the guy that gets Phil, the guy that gets completely psyched out by Chuck Long on the uh, on the bootleg keeper there that won that game. And um, so, I mean, he had a long connection 
with Norm. And so you keep that, the, that foundation in place, but a, a guy that represents a different generation and has, you know, scheme versatility, the Raider package and some of the things we've seen uh, that have been implemented, implemented since he took over. So I think that, that change uh, brought about by Norm's retirement, um, I, I think that has been the best change that they have made because it merged the best of both worlds. Uh, it, it kept a system that had proven to be extraordinarily successful in place, but uh, brought in some fresh blood that was more willing to adapt it circumstantially and just not sit there. And I love Norm to death. He remains one of my all-time favorite people. Early in my career, it was one of the highlights of my year every year. Um, it almost made up for the parking tickets they gave me every damn year. Uh, I go out there for <laughs> Iowa football media day and have lunch with Norm Parker, just me and him, every year. And it was a blast. And um, But there, there's a certain age, and I get it. You know, I'm going to be 46 this year. And I'm starting to make that evolution from, my, like, last night, my oldest daughter went to a Sam Mendes concert. I'm like, who the hell is Sam Mendes? And uh, that'd be Sean Mendes. There you go. I didn't even know. Yeah, I don't know. And she looked at me like I was from another planet. And, like, three years ago, I would have, like, felt like I was going to need a blue pill and I just lost more hair. And now I'm, like, totally owning it. I'm like, I don't know who the hell Sam Sean Mendez is. I don't care. You know, I don't – whatever. Just yeah, it makes safe. you feel good, actually. It does, yeah. I'm, like, totally owning it now. And so I can get – I totally get now why a guy like Norm Parker's like, hey, screw you, man. I am not putting a nickel corner in there because, you know, back in 88 at Michigan State, we put, we put Percy Snow on the, on the receiver, and it worked. You know, so I get it. I totally get it. Uh, unfortunately, while I may while I uh, may sympathize with it, it's not a good way to continue winning football games. So um, I think that change has kind of been the the best of both worlds. You know, you're right on the nose, and, and Phil Parker it has so much goodwill in the bank right now. Iowa gets a commitment on Sunday from a defensive back who had offers from Davenport University, Northwood University, and Southeast Missouri State, and Iowa. And he committed to Iowa. And Patrick Vint from Go Iowa Awesome simply retweeted that list and said, in Phil we trust. And if that's dead on. Nobody's batting a flipping eye who's an Iowa fan because of what Parker's been able to do, the talent he's been able to churn out. And yeah, that is, that's, that's very good. That's dead on. And thank you for the question, Jason. That was also a good one. Jeff Myers asks, is the 2020 Iowa recruiting class the best in the Kirk Parents era? If we're going to talk just raw numbers, I don't think they're ever going to rank as high as that 2005 class did with Tony Moyaki and Jake Christensen and Trey Strauss and a number of other players. I mean, that one just from a pure rankings, not factoring in what happened once they got to college. That one was a top 10 Rivals.com era recruiting class. They've never mm-hmm. had that, and this will not wind up being that either. But this is a really good class, and they are getting players in many areas where they do a real good job of developing those players. Um, do you see a possibility where Tristan Werves, Alaric Jackson, and A.J. Epinesa all enter the draft after this season and all go in the top 10? That is from Sean. I don't think that all three will go in the top ten. However, I think if healthy, all three will likely enter the draft next year. Yeah, I could see a scenario. Well, I think Epinesa um, 
is a strong candidate to be in the top ten. I think Werfs absolutely as a as a as a possibility. Um, but I think all three could very well go in the first round. I would agree with that, and that would be pretty incredible. I think unprecedented, perhaps, at Iowa. Um, I'd need to go back and look, but if it ha- if it's happened before, it may have happened one time. Um, Gordon Bombay asked, will Iowa have a 1,000-yard rusher at running back this year? I'll say no because I think that they're going to have multiple. Last year they played three, really two and a half because Ivory Kelly Martin was hurt so much. Um, uh, Mekhi Sargent, Mekhi Sargent, Still wasn't fully up to speed on schematically. I think that they're going to take some steps forward there this year with running backs, knowing what they're going to do. But I think they have several very qualified candidates that one guy's probably not going to get enough carries maybe to get a thousand. Yeah, I think it really just comes down to unless you have a, a next level talent like a Jonathan Taylor, most most programs in college football, including programs that emphasize the run nowadays, are are looking to um, keep guys fresh, are looking to play multiple backs. It's like the and NFL. Yeah, just like in the NFL. And that's why you're seeing more of the mid-major backs at places like Florida Atlantic and, and Memphis and places like that. You're seeing those guys now, like a Daryl Henderson at Memphis last year, putting up monster numbers because they just aren't taking the beating and the wear and tear. 30 carries a game is 25, 30 carries a game at any level of football, you know, is a test to your manhood. But 25, 30 carries a game against the likes of SMU, Southern Miss, ain't the same as doing it in nine games in the Big Ten or in the Pac-12 or eight games in the ACC, SEC, et cetera. And so you're seeing a lot of schools that even really emphasize the running game um, in the Power Five now, unless you've got, you know, a guy that can go for 2000 on an annual basis, like a Jonathan Taylor, then you're seeing the vast majority of schools now are playing uh, running back uh, roulette like you see in the NFL. Cody DeZuarte asked, if the over-under on Brian Ferentz being Iowa's next head coach is 65% chance, what are you taking? My head hurts on that. I'm not exactly sure what he's asking. But if you're saying, do I think it's 65%, I'm going to say I would take under. I don't think it's 65%. I think they have to do some things uh, the next few years. Well, I will always defer to you on internal administrative questions. But I will tell you, I, I I will say this. If I had not let you answer first, I would have gone over. Let's just... Why don't you like not give into my whims? And I'm you just be Steve Davis. I'm, I'm respecting that you have a level of insight here I don't have. That's all. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate your assumption. Once upon a time, that's probably true. Right about now, your couch is closer to Iowa City than my couch. <laughs> <laughs> but your Rolodex is a hell of a lot closer than mine. So well, you, you, got, you have to open it for it to have any power. Um, <laughs> I'm just a guy doing a podcast with my friend. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I just, if, if you, if you're going to ask me if I want that, I do. I think Brian would be a very good coach at Iowa. And I think I, I've said this before and I remain convinced of it. You have to know what you're getting into. 
at Iowa. And to me, that's why I've always felt that I was a bad hire away from being Minnesota. And I think the first and foremost ingredient in that is hiring a coach that knows what the challenges are at a place like Iowa. There are a lot of great things being the coach at Iowa. Hayden Fry and Kirk Ferentz have shown that to be true. But there are a lot of inherent challenges you're going to have there relative to the local talent base. And therefore, I think stylistically, things probably will work best if they're in a certain mold. Now, that doesn't have to mean you have to do zone scheme running for 20 years. But I I think that you know that your state's going to produce a good number of very qualified offensive linemen, tight end types. Um, you know, just overachiever chip on their shoulder in the trenches, guys. And that's from where you need to build your football program. You got somebody coming in like a Jeff Brom and says he wants to do this and that at Iowa. I mean, he might be a good enough coach to elevate it, but I just don't know how sustainable that is. And I think Iowa fans have also grown accustomed to a level of sustainability. When you have two coaches over 40 years, it's kind of what it does to you. So anyway, that's why I think, Brian, I will be a very big proponent of him as the next head coach at Iowa because he knows what it's going to take and what those challenges are. And I think he has enough innovation in him to tweak things and and maybe see the best of what, what I just laid out can be, where maybe his dad hasn't i don't know can i add one thing to that on a, sure. on a macro level i think we have learned that every program other than ohio state who has won 73 percent of its games the last 66 years regardless of who the head coach is which is by far better than everybody else in college football i think what we're learning is every school other than ohio state is one higher away from being bad you know, USC went five and seven last year. Florida State last year missed a bowl game. That was the longest uh, ongoing streak in college football. What was Alabama the era before Nick Saban took over? Yeah. Uh, you know, Michigan, Michigan has won double digits. Michigan's kind of the program that is kind of where it was now under Lloyd Carr, uh, most years and a 10 and two, nine and three program. And, but before that, it barely averaged seven wins a year in the decade before he arrived. Michigan State was just three, was three and nine just three years ago. Notre Dame was four and eight in 2016. Brian Kelly has had three seasons of five losses or more there. So, you know, Washington, a couple of years before Chris Peterson took over, went 0 and 12. So, I, I mean, I, I think at this, you know, Auburn, I mean, if you're Iowa, you look at Auburn, you think to yourself, man, look at all the advantages that a school like Auburn has, man. Since 2006, Auburn has lost five games or more ten times. So I I think what you're learning right now with the TV networks in place, the amount of revenue that everybody's making, except Pac-12, but everywhere, everywhere else, the amount of money everybody's making. You know, it, it wasn't four, three, four years ago, Jeff Braun would have called Louisville three seconds after Bobby Petrino got canned rather than a, a two week excruciating courtship where he decided to stay. Everybody with the amount of money now that everybody has where Northwestern might have the best facility in the country. And if they don't, hell, Minnesota might. All right. 
all the all of that stuff now is is not nearly as pronounced. Everybody kind of has the stuff Oregon had ten years ago when Chip Kelly was there. Almost everybody kind of has stuff like that now. So all of that money, all of that revenue, ev- I, I, except for maybe Ohio State, every program in the country is one bad coaching hire away from cratering. I think we are beginning to learn that. Indeed, and for 40 years, since 1981, Iowa has the 27th best winning percentage in the sport, and there are four teams ahead of them in Marshall, Toledo, uh, BYU, and Boise State that don't play in a Power Five conference. So you say among Power Fives, they've got the 23rd. I think they've done well, and I, I, I just kind of think Brian Ferentz might be able to tweak it, maybe even a little more. Last thing here, and probably this is – as Mark, Doctor Mark Morehouse and Scott Dockman like to say, a whole nother podcast. Expansion possibilities of the Big Ten and Big Twelve. I, I, I don't know that I want to go too far down that road right now because I think we're still several years away from it. I, I don't know that I'm. I guess I'm more pessimistic about expansion than I would have been a few years ago. I actually think that maybe power brokers in the sport are a little gun shy um, of, of rekindling that because I think if we if we go on the expansion um, carousel again, it could be drastically uh, much more of a sea change than even before. Well, the number one is you have to you have to look at when we went through this before. What were the triggers of this, and are those factors still in play for when the next round of contracts comes up? So the triggers for this before it were television markets and television revenue. All right. And and now you're in a situation where every the the American Athletic Conference, which is the biggest mid-major league, just signed a massive deal with ESPN Plus. Now, it's nowhere close to the power five leagues, but for where they're at, that's a massive fund. That's a massive funding mechanism for them. So uh, there's there's five leagues. Four of them are extremely satisfied with their current situation. And one of them is the Big 12 now. Um you know, with what they've done with their third-tier rights, where they just let everybody go out and form their own digital version of, of the Longhorn Network, knowing that, you know, Kansas State and Iowa State weren't going to make as much money. But they also then, whatever they made, they got to keep all of that themselves. Uh, and then, you know, uh, this year with, when ESPN Plus uh, launches for football season, they're essentially going to be the Big 12's network. That's where the Big 12 stuff is going to be. And, and with everybody getting, you know – getting rid of cable and satellite and cutting the cord, that's going to be like a Big 12 television network now. So the only league that's unhappy is the Pac-12, and and they don't have anything structurally wrong. Their management is poop with corns in it. They've got massive markets, huge demographic populations, and populations that are very progressive in the way they view technology in places like Oregon and Washington State and Southern California. So they'd absolutely be totally fine with an all-digital network in that part of the country. Their AD, Larry Scott, just sucks ball sweat. So they don't need – they're not the Big 12, where they have demographic problems they just can't overcome. Their management just sucks. They just need better personnel. Just make better personnel make, and negotiate better deals, and they're going to make all the same money everybody else is making. So those triggers are not going to be a factor this next go-around. So then you have to ask yourself, are there any other triggers? And really, the, there's only one other trigger that I can see, and tell me if you disagree, and that's the playoff. If you're going to keep a four-team playoff, then I think there's all kinds of incentive 
to go to four 16-team conferences. Right. If you're not, but if you're going to expand the playoff, and you're going to, and and the television revenue factor isn't the detriment that it was before, then I don't know, you know, what's I, I don't know what the major incentive is for another round of uh, of, um, of of realignment. Provided the Pac-12 can actually find themselves a commissioner who knows his head from the hole in the ground. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think I think it does hinge on the playoff. And if it's only, if it's going to be four, I think four 16 team divisions would be awesome. You know, I, I've long been a more of a traditionalist. I'm kind of getting over those things now. I, I love the Big Ten. I love the teams I've watched Iowa play all these years, and I'd love to continue to see them playing them. And I think that you could probably put something in place where that could continue to happen by and large, where you'd still see many of your old friends that you've had through the years. But I also would be just fine shaking things up, and and four sixteen team divisions would be great. I, I just, I mean, gosh, do we get in lawsuits? Who who are the who are the Gosh, 17 teams that are left out that are presently in a Power Five conference or something like that. I don't know. You know, I mean, Notre Dame's going to win one of those teams in. Which is, which uh, is why I think they're, we're going to expand the playoff. And I think it's going to happen soon for all of those yeah. reasons. That's why. Yep. And you got, yep. because you have other issues too where you've got, you know, late, too many games. The SEC is struggling with attendance now. Everybody is struggling with their students. Students just don't want to. Students are like, you know what? I will watch you guys play. Uh, I'll watch Alabama play Susquehanna armpit on my phone. I, I don't need to sit out there all day and do that because I can do 15 other things. So you don't have enough compelling games. You know, your postseason attendance is in the toilet. The, the, the college football needs more meaningful games. And the only way to provide more meaningful games is to expand the playoff and have an automatic bid component with at-larges so that everybody has an, an incentive to strengthen their schedule and schools like the SEC start playing home-and-home, home, um, you know, non-conference games. Florida is going to play a non-conference, hasn't played a, a non-conference road game since Syracuse in 1990. Alabama hasn't played a non-conference road game since Penn State in 2011. When mm. Paul Feinbaum, when Paul Feinbaum is bitching about the lack of strength of schedule in the SEC, and this mm. year his network has has four of the eight easiest schedules in the country are all from the SEC and Alabama is one of them. So if you if you're going to expand the playoff then that I think cures a lot of these ills, avoids a lot of these lawsuits, gets rid of a lot of the incentive uh of of another round of realignment because with an expanded playoff I I don't know what the incentive would be to do this again. TV markets will be irrelevant because of the um uh, of the cutting the cord factor. Everybody's digital. Everybody's in every market now. It's just not irrelevant like it was 10 years ago. You right, know? right. Yep, different landscape. All right. Thank you all for your submissions for this week's podcast. We really appreciate it. For Steve, I'm John. We'll talk to you soon.